Well, in the last nine to ten months or so, I've rediscovered a childhood fascination of mine. And it, it had never truly fully gone away, but it, uh, it certainly has come again to the fore, and that's a fascination with war and soldiery. When I was young, the G.I. Joes uh, I had would be fighting very, very strenuous wars against each other practically every day. I would read voraciously about World War II history, uh, and I was very fascinated by war. And in uh, recent, uh, recent months, with the conflict in Ukraine and conflicts in other uh, areas, it's been fascinating for me as a student of military history to follow along and see the arrows of this uh, brigade and this battalion went this way and the military tactician saying if they trap this against this river, they've destroyed this bridge, they may not be able to get out, they're pushing them this way, the offensive is coming this way, and it's been very fascinating. But one of the other fascinating things about this war that I didn't, hadn't experienced in the past is that in this war, you can practically follow along in real time with the videos that are available, things that you weren't able to see in the past. In World War II, there was some footage, uh, quite a bit of footage, in fact, uh, and many of these you can see in some great documentaries. But now you can see uh, uh, helmet cams and body cams from people as they're rushing various sites, uh, 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 footage uh, from drones as the bombs are dropped on people. And you start to get an understanding of the grimness of war when you start to see it uh, 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 actually take place a grenade instead of having some big, beautiful, movie-esque explosion just sending shards into people who slump down and, and begin bleeding and, and pawing at themselves because of their terrible wounds. You start to see some truly horrible things. And you, it's been a, uh, uh, a fascination of mine, but also a, a realization or a reminder of the, the grimness of war. And yet, we can't escape the fact that we as Christians are called to be soldiers. We are called to do that, and we are called to serve in the army of the Lord. This is something that in recent years, uh, many, many uh, Christians have attempted to tamp down. We don't want to emphasize the church militant. We don't want to emphasize the Christian as a soldier. It has off-putting connotations. And yet, this is a picture, an analogy, a metaphor that is used throughout Scripture. And so, I think it is incumbent upon us to understand what it means for us as Christians to be soldiers, because this is something that we do need to understand if we are going to fulfill our role as soldiers. And it seems to me, in looking at this passage and in just understanding about the role of soldiers, that to be a good soldier, you're going to need to know a few different things. You're going to need to know who you're fighting. That seems an important thing to know uh, when you are going to be a soldier. Who am I fighting against? You need to know what you're fighting with, and not simply who you're fighting with, but what am I going to be using? What is my role? 
Am I in artillery? Am I in the Air Force? Am I in infantry? Am I in some sort of armored division? I'm going to need to know the tools. It's been a fascinating aspect of the current war about military aid going to countries and then them having to learn a new way of using and operating very confusing technical equipment, sometimes even uh, uh, weapons as well. You need to know what you're using. And you need to know what you're protecting, what you're fighting for. The morale of an army is uh, something that uh, can withstand and overcome even great uh, uh, deprivations in many other areas. Throughout history, we've seen many examples of under-equipped, under-manned forces uh, succeeding against forces that are themselves uh, not great in morale, those that are not certain what they are fighting for. And finally, as soldiers, you need to know who is directing you, who is making the plan, whose orders you are meant to be following, following. Well, when we come to this passage, we see a very interesting concept. And this is the concept that our war is a spiritual war. Now, we all understand this, right? This is, we all know this. This is theologically accurate. If we were to, to be asked about this, what is our struggle? What is our battle? We would say, oh, yes, absolutely. The weapons of our warfare are not, car are not carnal. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Absolutely. And yet, of course, the fact is that it is very difficult when we really delve into it to truly understand and grasp a war that we can't put faces to. There are people in our day and age, uh, increasingly people, from all different aspects of society who are attempting to get us to fight various wars of some kind or another. So you have a war on this or a war on that, either a war that's against something you love or a war against something you hate, and you're going to be enlisted as a soldier in the war on whatever. I, I bet if you did a Google search for war on blank, you would see it a truly incredible number of various things that people have either declared war on or have said that somebody else has declared war on uh, uh, your, themselves. And so there are a large amount of people and institutions who are trying to convince people that they should be at war. And why? Because a wartime uh, people or wartime society properly motivated is a truly formidable thing. People are willing to and have endured great privations and given everything to causes when they are engaged in a war. We see this uh, certainly I think best in recent memory, uh, exemplified by World War II and the greatest generation. When you read truly about the privations, the deprivations that these people had to go through in order to ensure that the society won the war, you can understand why people who themselves want to motivate a people, who themselves want to perhaps get the gain of a motivated people, would say, we're at war. Therefore, you must listen to me, you must do what I say. You must give to what I uh, uh, say to give to. But we are engaged in a war against what? We see this uh, uh, said in verse 12. We wrestle not 
That is, we fight against uh, something that is not flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The first thing we need to understand is who we fight against. If I were to have each one of us close our eyes and think, who are we wrestling against? Who is our enemy? Who are some of the people that has uh, uh, made our hearts angry in the last week, in the last month, in the last longer time period? Perhaps if we were honest with ourselves, there would be faces that would come up. There would be names that would come up. Perhaps of people close to us who we are, have engaged in fights with, broken relationships, Perhaps other people, people at work who seem to always be uh, standing against us. Perhaps they would simply be, perhaps they would be politicians. Perhaps they would be media members. Perhaps they would be rival sports team quarterbacks. I don't know. But there would be people that we would think of as being enemies. The people that we ought to fight against. And yet what we see here in Ephesians is Paul saying, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the, uh, as spoken to by the Holy Spirit, that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Now this is not to say that we as Christians will not have enemies. In fact, we are told with absolute crystal clarity that we will, in fact, have enemies. We will have those human beings who will uh, seek to persecute us and to oppress us. But what we see here is that they are not who we fight against. They are not the enemies that we fight against. These are not who we wrestle against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle with and we fight against the devil and his legions. Our warfare is spiritual. Now this, again, we each have heard this before. We have understood this, I'm sure, as a concept. And yet it's very difficult in daily life to not allow a warlike spirit when it comes to our adversaries to begin to creep in. And there, I have heard it said, in fact, sometimes from pulpits, sometimes from uh, various other leaders in our world, that there is a time and place for wrestling against spiritual enemies but when your physical enemies, when the people who are arrayed against you, when the forces that are arrayed against you are sufficiently evil, sufficiently nefarious, then the time for turning the other cheek is over. We need to fight. We need to conquer because otherwise the stakes are too high. Well, it's interesting to note that when Paul is writing this, who are his enemies? Who are oppressing him? Who would be the people that he would be justified in saying, we wrestle against the devil, and we're also going to do a little wrestling against, well, who were his enemies? The Emperor Nero. Now, the Emperor Nero, not simply uh, by Christian accounts, but by almost any account, was about as wicked a leader as you could possibly have. He was incredibly wicked in his personal life. He was incredibly uh, destructive as a leader for his own nation. He was in every way a bad leader. And furthermore, 
He personally was responsible for one of the largest crackdowns on the church that there was in all of Roman history. He was the one who blamed the fire of Rome on the Christians. He said, these Christian, this, this Jewish-related cult has come into, uh, into Rome and people are turning away from the true worship of Jupiter and Apollo and all of the, the Roman gods, all of the gods that made Rome strong and powerful and conquering of all of these worlds, all of these nations, made Rome the greatest power on the earth. The Christians have come in, they've corrupted us, and so he did incredible, incredibly savage, brutal crackdowns on Christians. He himself uh, was uh, responsible through these crackdowns for the death of Paul eventually, and Peter, quite, a, quite an enemy uh, to have, but not simply enemies without, not simply the enemies of the, uh, of the Romans, not simply the enemies of the Pharisees and the others who were pursuing Paul and all of the people he loved, from, to every church that they were going to, attempting to bring crackdowns, attempting to cast them out of the city, attempting to stone them. The external enemies were, were incredibly difficult to deal with. And yet, we also see internal enemies. We see in many of Paul's epistles how many times there were great internal strifes and fightings and uh, attempts by people who were claiming the cause of Christ to turn people away from Christ. The amount of enemies that Paul had were truly, truly remarkable. They shouldn't be remarkable, but we live in a time in which, uh, as, as much as it may not seem like it, our own enemies are, certainly in terms of, uh, or in comparison to Paul's time, weaker and uh, less motivated in a human context. The fact is, however, that we should not be surprised because Paul, his true enemy that he recognized, the enemy that he was wrestling with, the enemy that he was encouraging the church at Ephesus to fight with all of their might, was the enemy that we ourselves face today. That is Satan himself. Now again, it does not mean that we do not have enemies. We see it in, throughout the words of Jesus Christ and throughout the New Testament, that we will be persecuted, that we will be oppressed, that we will have people who are out to get us, human beings who want to stop the cause of Christ. And yet, what did Jesus say? And, what we, we, and we will see this exemplified a little bit later, but what did Jesus say? We are to love our enemies and to do good to them. That's not the treatment of an enemy. That is the treatment of of somebody for whom Jesus died. And that is what we are called to do. Those are, uh, those are human beings that will hopefully, we hope and pray, eventually be enlisted in the cause of Christ. It's certainly something that we do not give up on. So, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We see that in verse 12. But second, what do we fight using? What are our weapons? Well, I think... Uh, certainly, we see this, uh, uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, that is to say, 
though we live in a body. We live in a physical world. We do not war after the flesh. That is to say, we do not fight using physical weapons. When he says we, by the way, this is not, I do not think that this would be accurate to state that Christians cannot be soldiers or cannot engage in uh, the use of weaponry after the flesh. However, our primary purpose, the reason we are on earth, is not to wage war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is to say physical, weapons that can be felt, can be uh, 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 seen, but rather, that is, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What is our fight against? There's, there's another uh, example there. Our fight is against these strongholds, the work of the devil. The devil's work uh, in uh, the minds and hearts of human beings. But our weapons are not carnal. And we see this uh, in our passage today in Ephesians as well. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Our weapons are spiritual. They are the weapons of God. We see in verse 17, the sword, the sword that we are given is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's a good reminder that our weapons are not weapons after the flesh. Now, I've seen some big Bibles, but I don't think there are many Bibles that are going to be able to do much as a weapon. You're going to have to chuck it pretty hard to do much damage with it. If we are armed with the, uh, the physical, what does Scripture say? What is the contrast here to carnal weapons versus spiritual weapons? The spiritual weapons are mightier. Now that may seem strange, but again, we're going to see that this has been the case in the church historically. It has been well proven out. Our weapons are spiritual. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty according to this power of God that works within us. The sword of the Spirit that is mentioned here, that is, uh, that is our sword, that is our uh, weapon against uh, the minions of Satan, Satan and his, his minions, not, again, not human, human enemies, is the, the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. They must both be present. They must both be present. There are many people who will seek to use the word, of the, God, uh, the word of God, but if it is not in the Spirit, if it is not as uh, directed by the Spirit, it can uh, be no weapon at all. In fact, it can even be used for evil. There have been people that have used Scripture out of context for evil many times over the years. We see it in the New Testament as well, how, how often... Uh, the devil himself can quote scripture in the wrong cause. So our weapons are not after the flesh. They are not carnal weapons. They are not physical weapons. They are instead uh, weapons of the spirit, this word of God. By the way, as I go through this, it's important to remember that when we are told to put on these things, 
We are not just called to understand what our weapons are, but we are called and we are instructed to be familiar with them and to be practiced in them. We do not, it would be a very poor soldier who waited to try to learn how to use his or her weapon until the time when the enemies were at the gates. That would be a very poor time to begin training. The, the important thing is to be working on these because the fact is that a, a Christian who is following the Lord will never truly be at peace from enemies. We may be at peace from human enemies for a period of time. We may be, there may be a period of time where we are not being oppressed by any human enemies. There's nobody out to get us. We are able to live peaceably with all men. But the enemy that we have, the enemy who we wrestle against, is constantly attempting to overthrow us. Perhaps at no time more than when we feel at peace, when we feel comfortable, when we feel uh, as if we are not fighting. Now, finally, we are fighting with uh, the sword of the Spirit. We are fighting with the Word of God. What are we protecting? It's fascinating. Uh, it, it, the question came to me as I was reading this passage in preparation. What does this armor the armor of God, protect. What does this armor of God protect? Well, certainly, of course, it does not protect our physical bodies. If you put on, if you took a shield of faith, well, shield of faith isn't going to stop a bullet. It's not to protect your body. Now, guess what? Of course, God is our ultimate protection of our physical body. Paul was able to confidently know that he would be protected up until the time came for his martyrdom. Even as he was in pain, even as he was, had a thorn in the flesh, even as he was uh, uh, pressed, as when he was stoned, when he was in bonds, nevertheless, he knew that God was protecting him and would not allow anything to occur that was contrary to God's will. And yet, this armor of God is meant to protect something of far more import than our physical bodies. Of far more import than the things of this world. Because the fact is that some of the people in the New Testament and in church history who have been the most strenuous, the most practiced, the most dedicated, the most persevering at putting on the whole armor of God, who were the most protected by the whole armor of God, were the least protected by any form of physical armor. We see this with the Apostle Paul, certainly. We see this with others. We, of course, see this best exemplified by Jesus. Jesus, Jesus was, of course, fully in the Spirit. He is our example for how we ought to confront the wiles of the devil, because he never lost. None of those fiery darts pierced his armor. And yet, Jesus' flesh was pierced. His hands and his feet were pierced. His, his, uh, his head was uh, pierced by thorns. Jesus' physical body was destroyed. It was killed. His heart was stopped. 
It grew cold. It began to decay in a sense until it was glorified. Yet, Jesus had, we cannot say, did not have on the whole armor of Christ. And all of this armor, when we read it, when we read uh, what this armor is, the, uh, our loins girt about with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. These are all protection for our spirit. Again, these are all protection for our spiritual walk. Just like the sword of the spirit is our weapon spiritually, all of these attributes and all of these disciplines are spiritual defenses. Now, all of these things taken in concert all, again, come back to this simple fact. Our enemies are spiritual. Our weapons are spiritual. Our defenses are spiritual. Even our prayer, our prayer that is the calling of God's power on our behalf. What do we see exemplified here, by the way? I thought this was very interesting in reading about this in connection in the context of this passage. Praying always, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So supplication for all saints. What is the prayer for? The prayer for all these saints and for Paul. Again, Paul in the, at this point who is writing from Rome who is writing from chains, from house arrest. Uh, I, I believe from what I saw, the most uh, uh, believe that this is from his first imprisonment, not the second imprisonment, the second time in which he was killed. But in bonds in Rome, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We don't see Paul saying, pray earnestly for me that I may be out of these bonds. We don't see Paul say, pray earnestly for me that my enemies, the jailer, the centurion, Nero, the Pharisees, that they be buffeted that they be stopped. He doesn't say, even as, as I might be tempted to if I were in this situation, you know, God, you know, you know if Nero were, to, Nero were to trip on his purple cape and fall down and, you know, kind of chip a tooth, I wouldn't, I wouldn't find that a verse. Maybe, and maybe, God, you could teach him a great spiritual lesson through this hedge of thorns that you ring around his, his way. Paul has, is, is not even taking the time in this passage to say, use this incredible power of prayer for my physical benefit. He is saying, pray that in my bonds, that under this oppression, that I would speak boldly. That bold speaking, that bold use of what? Of the weapon that God gave him to use. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The Word of God being not simply... The, uh, the word of God in the pages of the word, but the word of God in the spirit that he speaks through us when we are speaking out of the word. Paul 
was preaching even in his bonds. He was evangelizing even in his bonds. Sometimes through the written word, sometimes no doubt through the spoken word. We see this throughout Paul's time. Whenever he would come to trial, Paul would take, you know, listen, I got a trial coming up tomorrow. Trial lawyers get very into every aspect of their case, and they're very careful about their time. They don't want to waste time on extraneous details. And Paul didn't waste time on extraneous details. Most of the time, he was trying to evangelize the people who were speaking to him. Because he realized they weren't his enemies. And he realized that although he would use the law in specific times to, when he had been unjustly uh, persecuted, but he understood that the law... Power, things of this nature, were not his weapons. And his brilliant legal mind was not his defense. That his war was a spiritual one. And what he was protecting against, what he was asking for prayer, for strength in, was not a physical battle. It was in this battle of the spirit. He was asking for prayer to speak boldly. He knew that that was the most important mission. Now, what does this mean for us? I think that the, uh, the best example of how to look at this is in uh, John. We see, I think, best, uh, the, of course, our best example for this, as in all things, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, at a certain point, was confronted with to what to all accounts would appear to be, and certainly was interpreted by all around him, extremely dangerous enemies. Extremely dangerous enemies. He was confronted with uh, people who came with swords and staves to take him to be tortured and murdered. Now, by the way, what do we see with Jesus and when he was confronted? Notice the difference in manner between Jesus when he was taken and when he was wrestling in prayer immediately before. Do we see Jesus sweating drops of blood in agony of spirit, wrestling, fighting at this time? We see a serene Jesus. We see a Jesus who is completely accepting of the cup that has been brought to him. We don't see a fighting Jesus. The fight was the spiritual fight before when he was wrestling in prayer. It was wrestling, it was wrestling in that prayer, in that time with God. That is, that is, that was his fight. His fight was against the devil. His fight was against temptation, a fight that he won, as he always did. And yet we do not see this exemplified. However, if you put yourself in the position of Simon Peter, especially if you had been sleeping during all the real fighting, all the fighting in prayer, you would find it very difficult to not see things as Simon Peter did. You've been with Jesus for three years. You've seen all the great things that he did physically for people. You've seen a week ago the people absolutely crying out to Jesus to save them. And all of a sudden you see a mob of people acting outside of the law, led by a traitor and a thief, coming to seize Jesus, somebody that you love, not simply that you venerate and respect, but that you love, coming to take him away 
to your oppressors, the Romans who are ruling over everything, and all of your dreams for a great kingdom, for a great rescuing of your people, of your nation, of your culture, of the worship of God, seeming to, to be close to vanishing away. It would be very difficult to not see those things in those, uh, see those in those terms. And we would see that uh, uh, Peter reacted as you would when enemies come after you. We, would, we see that uh, uh, Peter did what you would think that any one of us, if we were sufficiently courageous, would do in that situation. Certainly some disciples ran away, but Peter showed some initial, what we would think as manly courage. The enemies have come, I'm going to stand up against them. Sure, surely they were grievously outnumbered. He took out his sword and he went to work. He sliced off the ear of somebody. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm not a swordsman, but I would guess that it's difficult to intentionally slice the ear off of somebody. You'd have to be very deft if that's what he was going for. I'm guessing Peter wasn't going for that. I think he was trying to cleave this person in two. He was trying to do him great mischief. Uh, and uh, we see this in verse 10 of chapter 18. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And what is Jesus' reaction? Again, this might seem very heroic. Jesus, you stand back. They're going to have to come through me to get to you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to stop this from happening. And Jesus said unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus is saying something that Peter was not understanding. Why was Peter not understanding it, of it? Because he was asleep during the preparation. Jesus was preparing himself. Notice, I, I mentioned this before. Jesus said, take away this cup from me if it be your will. That was where Jesus was wrestling. We see Jesus accepting here and saying the cup, I have wrestled in prayer and God has given me the answer. This is my cup to drink. Will I not drink it? And what is he saying? He's saying that, that sword, that's not our weapon. He's saying that Malchus, that's not our enemy. Even Judas, that's not our enemy. And the defense, you're trying to defend my body. This is not what we defend. Jesus had the, the ability to defend himself. We see that even in this passage. We see that even in this passage. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. We see the power of Jesus. Jesus is not lacking in power. It's, it's, it's almost amusing to see the concept of Peter with a sword trying to protect the king of kings and lord of lords who could call down legions of angels to protect him. It, it, it's almost embarrassing. And, but Peter thought, got a little bit confused, and he started to think that his war, his, the weapons of his warfare were carnal. He started to think his enemies were physical. He started to think that he needed to protect Jesus' body. And Jesus was saying, listen, my death, the death of this body, the destruction of this body, will be the victory. You need to get a view. You need to get an understanding that is uh, influenced by my spirit. 
You need to get a vision that is of God's vision, not of your, the vision that you're seeing with your eyes when you see people with sticks and, and swords in front of you. You need to have a higher understanding. And what is the, what is the fact of what occurred after this? Uh, why was Peter doing this? Well, he was doing it to protect his friend. He didn't want this to happen to his friend. But I'm sure he was also doing it to protect the church, to protect the ministry. Jesus, if you die, what is going to happen? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to the people that you love? What's going to be happen to the work that you're doing? It's going to be snuffed out in this nascent state, in this early state. It's too, we don't have all the people on our side. If they, if they would have done this, when all those people from Jerusalem, if they had had time to join us and we had had a really good momentum going with people, then maybe we could lose you. But we can't lose you now. Well, what did Jesus know? Jesus knew, of course, that the power of God was beyond the power of the sword. God, he knew that of those people, the people that would be oppressing those, those Christians, even some of the people stoning them, as we see with Paul himself, that those enemies, some of them would be turned to being uh, soldiers for God, and he knew that the most effective armor against the most dangerous threats were not was not physical armor against physical threats. And so, our application, what we ought to do with this, is to understand something very, very essential. Because the fact is that, again, as I said, there are certain times in which perhaps it is appropriate to recognize uh, the time for self-defense in certain areas. However, it is incumbent upon us that we consistently and constantly fight against our fleshly impulse. Because the fact is that as long as each one of us is alive, the enemy will have little inroads into our life. There'll be little areas and weaknesses in our armor. And the devil's going to find it because the devil is constantly probing and tempting and trying to do his work. The devil's trying to bring us down. And he's trying to bring us down in what way? He's trying to bring us down spiritually. What does the Bible say? Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear those who can deliver your soul into hell. Don't fear those who can harm your physical body. Fear ultimately the spiritual, uh, the spiritual enemies that we have. And what are we fighting for? We're not fighting to defend our physical body. Jesus even said this to Pilate. Jesus said in verse 36 of John chapter 18, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus was reminding us, and we see this throughout Scripture, not just in these passages, but throughout the New Testament. If we are starting to focus on a kingdom that is of this world, if we are starting to focus on a, a something that is uh, on weapons that are carnal, on enemies that are physical, that have faces, if we are starting to focus on protecting with armor, with perseverance, with dedication, things that are on this earth, we are protecting 
and we are focusing on and we are warring with things that will pass away. When Jesus said, don't spend all your time accumulating things on this earth where moth and thieves break through, steal, things get ruined, he was telling us a related concept to this. We don't protect, we don't focus on, we don't desire uh, and fight most in this area. And so, this is my encouragement uh, uh, to myself and to each one of us. We should be inspired as soldiers of Christ. We should be. We ought to be. This ought to be a focus of ours. What's the word here? Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. That is in connection with the prayer of the Christian. The prayer of the Christian that is an essential part of the putting on of this armor and of the wielding of this sword of the Spirit. The prayer, the time of the word, the putting on of this righteousness of God, this is something that requires perseverance. This is something that requires watchfulness. This is something that requires prayerfulness. This is something that requires constant attention and energy, as would befit any soldier in a physical realm. This is what we are called to. But this is what we are called to, and as we are called to it, as we are seeking to be built up in this calling, in this vocation that we are given, this vocation of soldiers for the Lord. Let us not be distracted. Let us not start to lose our mission. Let us not start to focus on the, uh, the carnal weapons, on the carnal, the things that are carnal that we would seek to protect, the enemies that are seeking, that we can see, that we can touch, that can touch us, that are seeking to oppose us. And always keep our focus keep our focus on what God has directed us to focus on. Keep our focus on the enemy that God has directed us to fight against. Keep our, uh, our focus on the weapons that God has given us to wield. The weapons that are a far more power. What was the outcome of, uh, of uh, Jesus' time in the garden? We all know the answer, of course. What was the outcome of the use of this armor by the people at the church of Ephesus, of the early church? A time in which they did not take up carnal weapons and in which they did not fight against Nero and have some large-scale uprising? What was the outcome of them working diligently and dedicatedly in this, uh, this spiritual warfare that they were given? What was the outcome? A flourishing church. A church that was healthy. A church that was growing. People were being added to it in which Christians were walking in, even, even as they were walking in persecution, were working, walking in holiness. This is what we ought to aspire to because this is how God's work goes forward. We can trust that if we do what God calls us to do, if we put on the armor of his might, if we wield the sword of the Spirit as we are called to wield it, that God who is omnipotent, that God who gives us the power of his might, who allows us to be strong in him, that his way will prevail. That even after Jesus was crucified, that even after Paul was beheaded or Peter was, was killed himself, that God's work would go forward, that God's purposes would not be withstood, 
and that individual Christians would eventually find that true and real victory, that true and real victory in their own spiritual lives, and that ultimate victory over pain, over death, over weariness, over all of the downfalls of this broken world in their heavenly rest when they eventually came to it. So, may we as Christian soldiers be equipped in this way. But I can't end without just saying one, uh, one more word. This is the work of those who are soldiers of Christ. The fact is, if you are not a soldier of Christ, if you have not enlisted in the Lord's army, if you are not saved by his grace, if you have not at any time truly uh, uh, dedicated yourself, believed in him, trusted in him to, uh, to, uh, to God, if you've never done that, then you are not on the victorious side. It's as simple as that. If you are struggling against God, if you are fighting against God's call in your life, even if it may seem to uh, be in your short-term analysis the more exciting option, the more fun option, the more favorable option, even the more responsible option. I'll follow God when I'm able to, when I have more time, when I have more energy, when, I don't, uh, when I'm not beset by these problems. The fact is that you are uh, on the wrong side. So, as I preach this message to Christian soldiers, I also urge any one of you, if you have not enlisted, if you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, today is the day of salvation. Take care of that today.